Hello, and welcome to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. In each episode, we explore the trends shaping tomorrow's global mergers and acquisitions landscape. I'm your host, Vito Sperduto, Global Head of M&A. In the second part of our healthcare M&A conversation, we cover strategic activity with special guests, Andrew Calloway, Global Head of Healthcare Investment Banking, David Levin, Co-Head of US M&A, and Ahmed Atiyah, Managing Director in M&A. One area that we always see a lot of activity across all sectors is consideration of divestitures and carve-outs. It certainly has been a type of transaction that generally leads the way for corporates. It's always a strategic alternative we're considering with some of our larger clients in terms of portfolio shaping. And so we'd love to get a sense in terms of how you're seeing it in the dialogues that you're having with your clients. And maybe, Ahmed, why don't we start with you in terms of uh, what you're seeing in terms of portfolio optimization? Healthcare portfolio optimization has absolutely been a a key theme, and I would say it's been a key theme across many sectors. And in our conversations with boards as they think through some alternatives, many are aiming to focus on areas where they have substantial market share. And as a result, we've seen spinoff activity, we've seen divestitures, we've seen carve-outs, and all in the spirit of trying to help create an improving focus on core businesses of all these enterprises and really shedding either underperforming units or shedding units that others could obviously optimize from a growth and profitability standpoint. Corporate carve-outs have absolutely been in vogue uh, as people think about divesting different businesses. And we see this across a range of businesses. You saw GE spin out its healthcare business 3M spun out its healthcare business. You've seen other larger corporates pursue carve-out transactions as well as spinoffs. We've seen uh, a lot of our corporate clients try to optimize their portfolios and, and actually getting rewarded pretty pretty nicely for it. Recently, we saw Viare, which is a portfolio company of Apex. They sold their consumable products business to another strategic. And we're seeing that type of activity with businesses, both large and small. Medtronic, as an example, on the medtech side, recently announced a review of their uh, respiratory and monitoring business, as an example. We uh, recently worked with Apex to divest their Clinis Supplies business out of Healthium. Really good transaction at the end of last year. KKR Growth was the ultimate acquirer of that business. So it's interesting you're seeing businesses, both large and small, uh, consider carve-outs. And as you're making these decisions with your clients and you're sitting there in the boardroom, are they choosing to divest because they think they're going to achieve a better multiple than where the overall enterprise is trading and therefore there's a valuation opportunity for them? Or are they seeing it as a time in the market where the market will allow them to shape their portfolio and maybe they're selling a less performing asset? Vito, it's actually split evenly 50-50. There's one element where the multiple arbitrage is definitely a topic that's on the board's minds, given how they've invested in businesses. And and in other cases, fundamentally, it's all about optimizing the core business and putting the divested assets in the hands of someone that could drive growth for those businesses and create more value over time. And as you think about being on the buy side of some of these divestitures, are buyers waiting for the divestitures to actually be um, ring-fenced and the process to start? Are they more one-on-one situations? Or are you seeing buyers be aggressive in this marketplace? I think we've seen some notable examples of that in terms of the buyers initiating the process. 
Great question. And what we're seeing in this marketplace is people being very aggressive about businesses they like, assets they like. We have seen a material increase in the level of unsolicited activity across healthcare broadly uh, in services, in medtech in particular, where the inbound interest and the value that select buyers are able to put on the table ultimately gets the sellers excited about thinking through unlocking different assets. And I think that's a theme that's going to continue in healthcare broadly. And that activity and the inbounds are a function of uh, larger corporates that, again, that have their business development teams humming aggressively about opportunities that can create shareholder value. The sponsor community uh, that's flush with capital in terms of, you know, over a trillion dollars that have to get deployed in assets uh, and healthcare is a, is a key focus area for, for many, both large and small. Fundamentally, Vito, it's interesting. We're seeing that unsolicited approach become a catalyst for a lot of the M&A that's been taking place over the last year in particular, and that's definitively going to be a trend going forward. David, why don't we pivot to you and maybe talk a little bit about the conversations we're having with some of our large cap clients, especially around regulatory concerns and how those are coming into play as they're making decisions on transactions today. There's no question that antitrust and the current environment we're operating in with the FTC is is on everybody's mind, um, and it's a frequent topic of conversation with our clients. You know, so, sometimes the the question will come up: Look, are, are we expecting to see big cap, big cap deals? Um, and the answer is not really. I actually think that um, that's not where large cap pharma's heads are at right now. And I think that this antitrust environment uh, is putting any thought of you know a large cap, large cap merger really out of play. You know, I, I think as they're thinking about deals. It's more bolting on products and platforms uh, that can fit and drive their growth forward. Now, a bolt-on for a large cap pharma could be a Seattle Genetics, a forty-plus billion dollars deal. But you know, still, it's it's more of that ilk than the the large cap, large cap uh, type merger. But even with those bolt-ons. The current environment, and I, I think the current political environment, which you know makes pharma an easy target, uh, is definitely on people's minds. And you know they're recognizing that it is going to be harder to get deals through. But at the end of the day, while it's taking longer for deals to get done, and sometimes you're needing to litigate uh, to get there, it's not stopping deals from happening. So I do think while it's on people's minds, and I do think. A lot of other large caps are probably watching Pfizer CGEN, for example, to see how that goes and uh, whether or not they, they run into trouble. It doesn't really seem to be stopping activity. It's, it's something people are talking about, they're thinking about, they're, I think, recognizing uh, the additional time, effort, and cost it is going to be to get deals done. But it's not gotten to a place where people are feeling like they, they can't get uh, deals that are you know, more product platform-oriented deals um, uh, through. I think that's a great way to put it. I think there's a recognition of that time, effort, and cost increase on all those three points. And certainly having to make sure that you've got a really strong team around you with regards to your advisors, because it's going to take a longer time and there's going to be more work that needs to be done with the, with the regulators. From a healthcare services perspective, it's been it's been very interesting. If we go back in time to some of the horizontal uh, integration that was happening in managed care and how the government put the kibosh on that to some degree. And I worked on the Anthem Cigna transaction that the regulators ultimately two years later uh, did not have go through. 
you've had a theme in services where the horizontal integration is is a thing of the past. In MedTech, you had really big deals six, seven years ago, Medtronic, Covidian as an example, where big businesses came together, built a lot of scale. And now the scrutiny, frankly, is, is across the board. So we saw United uh, acquire change. Ultimately, they had a bit of regulatory scrutiny with the FTC, but that transaction went through. Similar vein to Amazon One Medical, where that deal had a second request from the FTC. And yet we see a, a smaller uh, healthcare services deal where HCA attempted to acquire a handful of hospitals from steward healthcare systems. So on a relative basis, you know, a smaller type of a transaction. And ultimately, there was regulatory pressure and scrutiny, and the parties decided to part ways as a function of that scrutiny. So the, the regulatory topic, I think, is top of mind as we have conversations with our clients and boards as they think about specific deals, as they think about counterparties. And it's a, it's a topic, I think, just given the regulatory regime that's here to stay. Yeah, and I think the United Healthcare transaction is a great example of where the parties need to be prepared for an extended time frame and need to have the resources available to live through that time frame to get the closing. Because I, we have seen the Justice Department in that case and the FTC elsewhere actually lose once they take it to court, but they're more willing to go that step at this point. And so it's just become part of the environment as we're thinking through it. Yeah, and, and Vito, just to follow up on that, I mean, I thought it was really interesting you know, conversation we had recently with um, some antitrust experts around that topic and trying to understand why are so many things going to court, e even when it seems like the government is losing uh, regularly. And it was interesting to hear them talk about the political dynamics of what's going on and that part of what's happening is that the FTC is trying to make the point to Congress that if they want a different antitrust regime, they're going to have to change the laws because the courts aren't working, right? So in some ways, they're going to court to prove <laughs> that when they lose, um, see, we can't get it done on our own. You you need to do something, Congress, to uh, to act. And that was a, a really surprising and interesting piece of insight to hear that that's part of what's driving them to go to court even when they know they're going to lose. Cal, maybe turning to you, We've certainly seen some of the largest participants in the healthcare space benefit from the government support funding the purchase of vaccines and, and so forth. And it's created an incredible surplus in terms of performance on their side. How are they using that from an M&A perspective to maintain their positions? And as you think about the IRA from a government perspective, how are your clients thinking about that? There's no question that it was a huge benefit to many large cap companies who participated in not only COVID vaccines, but also in therapeutics. And I think, you know, with growth beginning to wane now, you're going to see those participants use that cash that's sitting on balance sheets to aggressively chase, you know, new opportunities really across the board. And that's true not only in therapeutics, but also in true in, in med tech as well uh, with a lot of the diagnostic players. As it relates to IRA, you know, this is something that's obviously new to us and something that everybody's still in the process of digesting. But what I will tell you on the therapeutic side is people are really modifying how they think about, you know, the long term for many of these programs with the thought that small molecules could have meaningful impact from a pricing perspective nine years out and biologics 13 years out. You know, there's a real question as to how to model the terminal value of many of these assets. And I think large cap pharma is, you know, still doing their work, but it's really changing how 
uh, large companies are thinking about, you know, the tail for many of these assets that in all candor, they probably would have ascribed a fair amount of value to. Well, look, I think in terms of wrapping up on the strategic side, I think we're, we're seeing a fair amount of activity in the second half of the year, whether it's carve-outs in certain areas, bolt-on transactions, maybe a little bit of a limiter in terms of very large merger transactions, especially with some of the regulatory headwinds that we're seeing across the board. But as we talked about, it is a topic of conversation in the boardroom. So certainly no, uh, no slowing down from your client's perspective on the strategic side. So why don't we dig into what we're seeing in terms of sponsor or private equity activity? Talk a little bit about some of the trends you're seeing with some of our financial sponsor clients. There is a ton of ample capital that the financial sponsor community has to deploy with over a trillion dollars of capital across both larger cap financial sponsors, middle cap, and and there's a whole slew of uh, firms that focus on healthcare specifically that I would characterize as the the middle market, and they're anxious to deploy that capital. What we're seeing is a few interesting dynamics. One is the capital raising exercise has been very robust for some of the bigger names. So Advent, as an example, raised a $25 billion fund uh, last year, and we're seeing some of the leading private equity firms raise even more capital in, in this environment, which I think is interesting. We're also seeing another dynamic where sponsors with portfolio assets are deploying a lot of capital in M&A from a bolt-on perspective to basically build scale for their assets so that when the time comes to uh, think about monetization and exit, whether that be via IPO or M&A, the businesses are on solid foundation and solid footing in terms of uh, those, those exit events. And we, as an example, you know, worked with Novo Capital on their acquisition of a very large CDMO in the Blowfill Seal space, a business called Right Dose. And we're seeing that capital get deployed in very creative ways across the whole ecosystem within healthcare. What's interesting is sponsor volume has actually declined between 21 and 22 by roughly 60% yet the capital that they have to deploy has gone up. So that really speaks to why we believe there's going to be a lot of activity in H2 of this year, particularly with sponsors that have had portfolios in their investments for three to four years that you know the time horizon has come for them to monetize. So with that increase in dry powder, the recent decline in deal activity, are you expecting larger deal sizes, which we've seen in, in some of the take private activity, or is it just more bolt-ons, like more number of transactions? What are you seeing? Vito, we're going to see larger deals because that capital has to get deployed in larger deals. So if you go back a couple of years ago, when we saw a consortium of sponsors acquire Medline, that was a very large $30 billion transaction. We saw the similar dynamic with Athena Health, where a couple of sponsors came together and deployed billions and billions of dollars of capital. So I do think we're going to see sizable deals, especially as some of the bigger uh, public company corporates are dealing with headwinds from the public markets. Uh, we're going to see uh, sponsors pursuing some of those assets. But I do think we're still going to see you know, a lot of middle market size deals because of the following trends. One is we're seeing sponsors get very aggressive in situations where they have an angle. We are seeing an increasing desire by financial sponsors to try to preempt processes. So there are situations where they like uh, divisions or subsidiaries of larger corporates, 
They like businesses that are owned by uh, other financial sponsors that they've developed businesses that are owned by their peer financial sponsors where they've developed a theme around specific sectors. And fundamentally, we do think that the number of high quality assets has been declining over time, given a lot of the M&A that took place in 2021, uh, the M&A that took place in 2022. So we believe we're going to see a lot of competition around assets that in particular are kind of of the, of the medium size, uh, you know, over the course of the next six months to a year. Ahmed, just following up on, on the conversation, as you think about the competitiveness in a process, certainly historically, you know, the, the rule of thumb is always strategics are going to easily be able to beat sponsors. But with that large pool of capital and how aggressive they're being, are you seeing any change in that dynamic today? What's interesting is the financial sponsor community has been able to outcompete strategics for assets in select sectors. So, for example, you had Cordon Pharma in the CDMO space trade to a sponsor. And what we know is there were strategics in the mix that were not willing to get to those levels. And we're seeing that dynamic you know, across the board, especially in pharma services around CRO assets, CDMO assets. And in some cases, select HCIT assets that could be very compelling and, and large platforms because of that capital, because of, in some cases, the desire of management teams to basically have another uh, another value inflection point. In some cases, businesses actually have a preference to sell to financial sponsors so they can grow under a, a private setting before exploring uh, transactions with a strategic. So it's been a very interesting dynamic over the last three or four years. And we expect that'll continue purely as a function of the capital that's out there to get deployed. And David, maybe turning to you, give us a sense of what you're seeing in terms of the sponsor activity in the life sciences sector. I mean, I, I know they've been doing some more creative things. Yeah, no, absolutely, Vito. I mean, sponsor activity in healthcare more broadly, very active in the sectors uh, Ahmed was just talking about, has generally lived a little bit less active in life sciences. But you know, traditionally, where there's been more activity has been on the specialty pharma and, and generic side. Given the, the challenges there, there's still been activity. For example, we, we did a sizable deal for SK Capital on the generic side, buying Apotex, a large uh, Canadian generic manufacturer, but it's been fewer and uh, farther between those deals. And the sponsors who've been focused on that activity have had to shift their focus a little bit elsewhere. And so we've seen them, in some cases, look at consumer health, OTC. Some cases look at uh, CDMO, which is you know uh, got some similarities from a manufacturing standpoint. So we're still seeing sponsors there, but you know less activity than we had previously. But but there's actually a new pocket of activity which is really interesting on the life sciences side. So historically, you hadn't seen sponsors really look to play more on the the biotech end of things. But they've seen that as a, a real opportunity to find opportunities to to capture value, and they've put expertise now onto their teams to build these life sciences funds. And it's less of a traditional M&A, you know, acquisition model and more of a creative financing model. So, the, so they're doing deals like synthetic royalty deals and other things like that to help uh, fund companies. But, you know, there's, there's definitely a real increase on that side of things, even though it's less traditional M&A. What's also interesting is you're seeing sponsors looking for very specific creative angles to unlock opportunities. So a deal that was recently announced, which is very interesting, you saw Amerisource Bergen partner with TPG to buy a business called One Oncology. 
uh, in the healthcare services space. And essentially what they put is a construct and framework where TPG is going to be the majority owner day one, but as a function of a put call option over the next you know three to five years, the ownership could uh, pivot. And what we're finding is sponsors are increasingly looking for that angle via the lens of not necessarily businesses that they already own today, but they are engaging a lot of the public company strategics to be a source of capital given the dislocation, broadly speaking, in the, in the, in the financing environment, but really to find differentiated angles where they could ultimately own a bigger enterprise in partnership with strategics. And I think that'll be more of a theme going forward uh, you know, as well to enable the sponsors to deploy the capital that we've spoken about that they have. And Cal, I mean, given some of the volatility, as, as Ahmed just highlighted, you know, sponsors are trying to be more creative in terms of how they're providing financing alternatives uh, to some corporates and the like. But as you think about some of the traditional private equity transactions, the LBOs, the volatility in the financing markets has created some dislocation. Some of the private debt providers have stepped in. Now, although I, I would say they're probably more focused on the tech the tech space and software in particular, if you look at the largest deals. But what are you seeing in terms of financing trends right now as we're trying to bridge to a more typical financing market? Vito, there's no doubt that private equity has benefited from having access to direct lenders as they think about existing portfolio company additions or smaller transactions. Where large cap private equity is struggling is accessing the institutional market. And as the institutional market begins to open up, I think we're going to see a wave of pretty sizable transactions. To me, that's something to really watch as we look into back half of this year and into 24, because given the amounts of capital uh, that Ahmed mentioned, there's no doubt that we're going to see 10 plus billion dollar type transactions in the private equity world. And there is, uh, Cal, there is a bifurcation too in the sponsor community in terms of how to think about leverage in the sense that half a billion dollar deals and above, they need financing. Yes, the leverage is going down relative to last year, but the market's trending positively, which is a positive. Rates per se are not a deterrent, but obviously impact returns. But when we think about the half a billion dollar plus equation, financing is definitely a critical piece uh, of the calculus. When we think about deals, however, that are $300 million and below, what we're finding is sponsors are willing to go in all equity. And we have recently sold a couple businesses where that was a dynamic, and it wasn't just with the prevailing party, but it was with multiple parties that we had in our our processes in both situations. And that, I think, is going to continue being a theme because people realize that over time they'll be able to recapitalize the balance sheet, et cetera. But I think that's what's also going to drive middle market and bolt on M&A deals, as we talked about before, because the financing challenges and headwinds are a little bit less relevant with the smaller deals that we're beginning to see more of over time. And look, there's no question that over the last 12 months, leverage for most companies has been in sort of that three to four times zip code, and that it's going to creep. And we're going to get back to five to six times leverage, hopefully, uh, as we end the uh, this calendar year. Cal, what advice are you giving clients today as they're thinking about how to get from here to the second half of the year where we expect a more open and robust M&A market? Be prepared and know what you want to do, because I think these opportunities are going to come fast and furious, and you need to make sure you have your ducks in a row from a management and a board perspective. Ahmed? I would add, think creatively about M&A. 
in terms of structure to bridge valuation gaps, in terms of backend mechanisms to address the topic of valuation, and also think creatively about financing. Do we think about seller paper in specific instances? Do we think about direct lending? How do we package a, uh, a fulsome proposal that addresses buyers on all fronts? Great. David? I think that the activity is still happening. Life sciences in particular is a little bit less cyclical on M&A activity than a lot of our other areas. And so you take advantage of the opportunities that the environment presents. Think about which deals make sense for you and figure out how you can go pursue them. All great advice. And I think, uh, as we always talk about being prepared, knowing what you want, uh, certainly thinking of creative solutions and don't wait for the transactions to happen, activities going on right now all things that I think make sense for any of our clients. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. Join us for more analysis about what's moving the M&A market in our next episode. Until then, thanks for joining us. And if you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed today, please contact us directly or visit our website at rbccm.com. This podcast was recorded on May 1, 2023. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.